Welcome to the Let Christie Take It podcast. Let Christie Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. And don't forget to mention the Let Christie Take It podcast. On this week's episode, Kieran and Derek are joined by singer-songwriter Nick Haywood. Nick rose to prominence with his band Haircut 100 and had a slew of top 10 hits including Favourite Shorts, Fantastic Day and Love Plus One which seen Nick nominated for a Niver Novello Award. Upon leaving Haircut 100, Nick's solo career took off with the single Whistle Down the Wind. Two further top 20 hits followed with Take That Situation and Blue Hat for a Blue Day. Nick continues to tour steadily and is a prolific songwriter. Let Christy Take It are proud to bring you Nick Haywood. Nick Hayward, songwriter extraordinaire. Welcome to Let Christy Take It. Ah, Very pleased to have you on the show. Nick, we're just going to kick straight in and try and ask you about your memories growing up in London as a lad. Oh, okay. Um, Wow, where do I start? I was barefoot in London once, (laughs) in Denham, um, going up to to Putney to buy a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> I needed a Hawaiian shirt, you know, and uh, I don't know why I wanted a Hawaiian shirt. Actually, I think it was Andy Fair with a low or something like that. Um, but I wanted something colourful and vibrant in life, and uh, I wanted to see what London was like, also, and and um, experience what walking on a, a barefoot was like, because I really I fancied being um, in touch with the with the ground and being a, a hippie at that particular time, because up until then I'd been a little bit yobby. Um, I was about, I was a yob for about a day and, um, I wore Dr. Martin boots and a Crombie, but I still had long hair, long blonde hair. And I went out uh, on my, on with a friend and, uh, we tried to be yobs and, um, it didn't work out. There was no, so I took the Dr. Martins home and I, I painted them a bit like uh, John Lennon's Rolls Royce. I painted my Dr. Martin boots multicolored with shapes all over them and everything. Then I took them off and uh, walked barefoot up to London with my with my girlfriend Elaine and um, we were in we were she was in cheesecloth I was in denim and uh, I don't think I could afford the bus fare home. So I oh, know. Yes, that's right. So she went on the bus. I paid for her to go on the bus, and then I walked home. That was it. Oh, very romantic. Yeah. I must say, it was the most romantic thing I'd ever done in my life up until that point. Nick, when did you first start getting interested in music? Um, that was always around in our house, always there, um, like omnipresent. It's just uh, I, I can just it was jazz always, and uh, just pop music um the carpenters and stuff but uh but you know dad put, took me to see count basie ray charles and oscar peterson at the hammersmith odeon when when i was really small and i just thought wow you know this is amazing uh, uh croydon fairfield halls we saw i think it was woody herman and uh i thought that was amazing too and it was just in the car on the eight track and I, had, you know, there's Pete, my brother. He was playing music, so he was playing Dark Side of the Moon and Diamond Dogs, and Dad was playing Dave Brubeck, and then Mum was putting on the Carpenters, and and I didn't actually have any eight tracks at that particular time. The first thing I'd got was um, Gypsies, Transom Thieves by Cher. You know, that was uh, I went to Shortlands, which was just just beyond the station across the road, because uh, we lived in this little. Um, it was called the Glen. Like an Irish Glen, really, but without being green. It was like quite really suburban and a little bit tough in the 70s. Um, everywhere was a bit tough, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, unfortunately. Yeah. Was, was there anybody else in your family musically inclined, Nick? 
Um, yeah, we, um, Dad was musically inclined, but um, I don't think he was confident enough to to learn an instrument because he always wanted to play saxophone. Um, but Pete did, my brother. He bought a guitar and was just, you know, his room was just filled with music. Uh, Argent's Hold Your Head Up High. That one su you know, summer, it was just played and played and played. T-Rex. Um, and uh, a, a real, real profound moment was hearing California Man playing uh, by The Move. I loved that song. You know, that was that used to come out of Pete's purple bedroom. That had like a smell, smelt like um, something I'd never really smelt like India. <laughs> something was going on in there, <laughs> and he had really pretty girls going in and out. You know, so it was like I just thought that that was that was the place. That was it. You know, my brother had a, a sort of perm, but it wasn't permed. It was like naturally thin. Thin Lizzy. It was natural kind of Phil Linnet he had going on, and he had he had a bit of a Jeff Lynne as well. So you know, to me, I'd like, well, my brother looks like one of ELO, you know, or, or at least Chicago or something. You know, he just looks like uh, from another world. He looks like Mark Bolan a little bit as well, and uh, he was starting bands and things. And so I was really proud of my brother. I thought he was a fantastic man. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, Nick, when did you decide to form a band? Um, I think, I think it was, uh, I thought I've got to get into this. This, this is, this is too brilliant. Um, I mean, I'm, I remember hearing Bohemian Rhapsody and just thinking, oh Lord, you know, <laughs> I don't think I'd ever heard anything as beautiful as that, you know, and this was, this was like wizardry as well. You never thought about that. You could even possibly make that, be involved in that, the making of and stuff. And, and yet actually when you know years later not many years later when i look back now in hindsight not many years later when we we're making our first record in the roundhouse studios um john gallon was the assistant on that album on 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 bohemian rhapsody you know so the guy who was making love plus one actually had been present when bohemian rhapsody was being made and i find that kind of stuff mind-blowing you know that you have a dream and you can you can just it just falls into place somehow and i, I just love that you know did you ask him about the, the making of bohemian rhapsody oh yeah i mean once i heard that it was kind of wow you know how did you get this sound on best friend you know that that word it's a sound it just sounds like it filled the whole of the room when you heard it what an intro and but what a sound it was also that i just and that's that's why the the piano on the, uh, the piano that's why the snare on Love Plus One is kind of quite thick, is because of John Gallen. He put it through a piano and he said, you know, this is how we did it on Night of the Opera. You mentioned Love Plus One, and can you tell us about the formation of Haircut 100? Well, that that was a that fell together. That was like haphazard. Um, I mean, it started way back for me at school when I had just starting bands and you know just having bands uh, that were more like just guys that were into music getting together in front rooms to listen to music and then mime to it. I don't know if you ever did that. Did you did you do that? Yeah, it yeah, you know, it's that thing of, you know, just imagine you're in a band and you, you get up and mime together and and stuff, and and then that then it then there was a mate of mine, Lawrence Bull, who was a jazz drummer, and so I'd go around to his, and you've got to play your role in in the band. So that's where I think I learned to make up stuff because I could didn't have uh, the ability to learn other stuff. Somehow I just you know, get thinking. Oh, that looks far too complicated. So I've got to make something up. Um, so I would make stuff up to play with Lawrence or any drummer. It's like when I started with uh, Rob Stroud at uh, when, when I 
left school and went to work up in London and punk was kicking off and you know it was Rob and I working at this commercial art company called House of Wizard and it was like okay let's let's go to Tim Pan Alley and buy some instruments so he bought a snare and and uh, we went home and just played on it and stuff so I had to make stuff up for him to play to hit to so it's like okay so that's where it came I think that 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 ability to make stuff up and that that just gradually it just gradually formed into songwriting I didn't know it was called songwriting but it's that thing of you were just trying to sound like everyone you loved you didn't have the ability but you were trying to so you know I'd try and sound like the XTC um, and end up sounding like some version of it you know and that's where a fantastic day came because that's my version of what I thought XTC was so early versions I've got cassettes of us playing fantastic day and it just sounds like I'm trying to be XTC we're all trying to go be XTC you know you know that was it um, it does sound a bit like that you know um, it's amazing, like, having watched uh, Get Back, I don't know if you've seen it, the Beatles uh, documentary. Mm. Oh, yeah. How a song starts out and how it ends up, it's incredible, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, and that, that the magic of a band, the way it works, and, um, you know, you've got, you've got more than one person putting it together, and that's where the magic is created. And then you get a producer come in, and then an engineer, and then you've got, you know, and then you get other people coming. It's like everybody filling in their position. Like a football team isn't just the football team, is it? It's the people that do everything. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's even how good everybody looks. I mean, it's down to design of how the colour is important as well, isn't it? You know, the colour of the kit and, you know, the emblem and every, everything's really important when you're putting a team together like that. So uh, all, the, all the positions were filling in and, um, you know, yes... Fantastic day sounded good. Yes, Love Plus One sounded good, but you know when Bob Sargent came in, they sounded even better, and they sounded like pop songs. And it's because he'd he'd cut his teeth with the beat. You know they sounded clear and crisp and concise and just, you know, we were working with that guy, and so he was using all his skills and because he was you know older than us, all his experience of putting it together, and. Um, so Love Plus One just started to sound like a pop song. When before it was just, it was really, it was interesting, Love Plus One. It was always, Phil used to have this really nice line that it didn't go, it went, it was really nice, but it was very reflective and thoughtful. But, you know, here it was, it got to that moment and, and uh, it was just a little adjustment, a bit like a suit, you know. We can take that in. We can adjust that for you, sir. We can make that little tight around the crotch. You know, we can open it around the chest. You know, we can make a little hat for you. Even. Oh, and a nice bow tie. That'll look good. And a little pocket handkerchief for you, sir. Yeah. And so, from the formation of Hercule 100 to getting a record deal, how long was that period? Um... That was really quick because I was super impatient. Um, we weren't getting anywhere. We were going nowhere fast. We couldn't get an agent. We couldn't get any gigs, really. We got a few, but we had to make them up, really. Uh, so I printed up little tickets and, and said we were playing at the Ski Club of Great Britain, which was actually where my parents uh, ran a bar. Uh, that was it. We got we we lived downstairs, and uh, that was it. So, uh, but you know, ironically, that was the thing that actually got the New Musical Express interested because it was kind of different because we couldn't get gigs. So, um, I was just impatient, so I just went to the NME and said, "Got to come and see the the band." And actually, I wasn't that forceful. Uh, <laughs> I just couldn't believe I'd got in <laughs> and I couldn't believe I was sitting in front of Adrian Thrills because I'd read his articles and I, th I thought this is Adrian Thrills like Thrills Adrian Thrills I'd, I'd read Adrian Thrills so many times <laughs> I've read all his articles and, and I was sitting in front of him and, and he was asking me questions and wow he sounds like he's actually interested in in the band i think it was the name 
which again is another thing you know you go through t moments when you're with the name and you know when you've got a really good name um it's like with bands now they haven't got time to change their name but they should do because you know just just honestly get another website going or whatever it is or change your social media because when you get that good name it really does change everything it's another really good it's like it's just as important as the color of the what you play in it's like uh no Haircut 100 is up there with prefab sprout as unusual names and people always ask but where did haircut 100 come from where did the name come from um i said it uh on the coffee table in the ski club of great britain one evening before we were going out and les said haircut 100 did you just say haircut 100 and i said oh, yeah i think i did and it was we laughed and we took it to the pub the three tons in beckenham where we used to go every friday night because we were we were all single Les Graham and I at that time and uh, we had a lot of time on our hands so we used to take it to the pub and try it out on friends and it, it just seemed to work because they'd ask us why and that that question that reaction of why was just perfect it was kind of surreal and quite commercial art and I was into pop art and commercial pop art and Andy Warhol and all things posters and vibrancy and stripes and 1920s 30s 40s 50s just so much commercial art i've been into so this was just it just it wrote really well when i used to write haircut 100 and when i found balmoral type script which is just i thought that's so un rock and roll i'd never seen that before that looks more you know because i was really into typefaces i mean that was my job to do that i had to choose the right typeface for the job otherwise you get the sack you know so it was very important Recording Pelican West, how was that, your debut album? Oh, it was a, an amazing experience and and, uh, and actually really uh, quick in hindsight. It was in and out. I mean, it takes ages to record albums nowadays. <laughs> then it was just kind of like a couple of days to do favourite shirts, uh, about three days to do the backing tracks for the Pelican West and, and then... And, a week or two to colour it in. <laughs> that was it. You know, I'd I'd come in by, and by the afternoon. You know, Mark had done a load of Brazilian percussion over it, and you know, just go nuts on it. And then you'd go out and have an ice cream and come back, and a brass section would have put some brass tabs on it, and it just went, oh my god, you know. And just having brass in it was amazing because up until then it was just Phil. So we'd asked. Um, Herschel and Lascelles to to come in, and uh, who we'd we'd met when we played in uh, Kensington at the college there, and they're in a band called the Tropicanos, and and uh, we supported them, and uh, we packed the place out, and they said, they said, you know, man, you're you you're quite successful, and that was only because of the NME article that we'd asked. That was it, you know. And it's amazing then the power of the New Musical Express that it it filled a whole gig of people just from having no one, no one at all. We were just not known at all, you know. It's it's using the right uh, tools, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's actually just a few little moves that you do, but they're, they're, they're tiny little moves, but they're huge in the long run. It's like, the, it's like the, the, the example that Tony Robbins uses, Anthony Robbins, when he says, in a golfing analogy, when he says that, you know, the little adjustment here and your swing can mean the difference between getting on the green or just being nowhere near. And you're this close to being a master golfer, you know, just by just a few adjustments here means a lot there. And so I didn't know that then, of course, I didn't use that then, but I just, I was just trying to make, you know, cause I, it, it came out of impatience. 
because I just thought we're getting nowhere. You know, I, I'd go to an agency and they'd say, well, you need to have, you know, you'd need to have a, a, a demo. I, well, we've got demos, but oh, then, then it was an excuse. It's a bit like going to a club and somebody saying, you can't come in tonight, you need a tie. So you go away and you get a tie and then you come back and they say, you need a suit. So you go away and get suits and you come back and say, no, no, you need a, you know, you need to have a hat. And it just goes on. And really what they want to say is, no, you know, sorry, not, you're well, not welcome in here. You definitely had a successful swing, toy, hat, suit, whatever you wanted. <laughs> Pelican West was a, the album was a smash hit. And the single, uh, Favourite Shorts, Boy Meets Girl, landed you guys a, a spot on Top of the Pops. Now, myself and Kieran are big fans of Top of the Pops. Mm. Like, oh, everyone aware. That made everything. Age. That made the whole yeah. difference. That was it. What, um, whenever we have guests on who have been on Top of the Pops, we, we love to get their memory of the day, their first time on Top of the Pops. What's your memories of your first time? Uh, how freezing it was, um, how basic it was, how unglamorous it was, uh, how little people no it wasn't little people there i mean it was like filled with dwarfs <laughs> can you say dwarfs no, just... how few people <laughs> uh, how few yeah. little people there are <laughs> everywhere leprechauns all over the place uh no there was um it was just there was about 10 people there i think they just made them look like lots more that was uh that was i don't yeah i thought that was just very strange um yeah very unglamorous and and, but the cold was the reason why we wore jumpers because we we were going to be wearing what we were wearing on stage at that particular time, which was very very funk, because we were doing the same tour as Level Forty Two and UK players, and so that's that's where, what we were doing. We were doing kind of like Hickstead Cinderellas and real real club dates, and uh, so we were wearing kind of a Converse, you know footwear and um, towels around us and stuff and you know whistles and that was very very sort of in at, at that particular time and um but but it was freezing so we're all our jumpers and jumpers tied around on it's like scarves yeah i i always look like that you haven't you're about to break out laughing every time i watched you perform it you look like you're having a great time and i was just about to go it was it was that was probably also a kind of protection the thing because i couldn't really believe that it was happening i mean you wanted it you were you were doing stuff to you know you really did want it but you just couldn't believe that it was happening at the same time it's really strange being like god you know we've got top of the pops you know it's it's really strange that it's happening real time you know and after top of the pops we pulled into a petrol station and we're getting recognised, and it's just like, wow! It was oh god, you know, the first time you'll never forget the first time you got, you know, recognised. It was disconcerting, but you wished for this, you planned this, <laughs> you went and saw that'll be the day in Stardust. You did want this, you wanted this. Don't lie, oh, come you on, can, you know, you can't be in a bit of Essex. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, people say, oh, it's the Beatles. That's why everybody wants to do it. But for me, it was it was David Essex, you know, like after seeing those films, you know. I mean, it, it was Ringo in it as well, and yeah. Keith Moon and that, that, that stuff. Brilliant cast. But those films had a real profound effect on me, personally. You mentioned getting recognised. And with the success of the album and the hit singles that followed, you, you guys were everywhere every teen magazine, every TV show, adorning the walls of girls across the UK and Ireland. How did you guys handle what seemed to be almost instant fame? Oh, badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not very well. You know, it was not a well-oiled machine at that particular point. It was uh, a bit of a free-for-all. Um, we, weren't, we weren't very together, really. We had a good, pretty good team-ish, you know. Ken, our security guard, was magnificent. He was a SAS guy, and he was so lovely. You would not want to mess with him, though. Jeez, I saw him go for people in Cardiff. These guys that tried to steal the truck and, and storm the stage and everything, and whew, it was a bit like blimey. Um, super respect to Ken now, you know. It was a bit like when he when he said, "Come on, we got to go in the morning. Get 
get your ass in gear, you were just like, yep. Pretty, yeah, he's actually not with us now. Um, but that's, that's another thing, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the team are passing away now. You know, Bob Sargent's not with us now. And um, this is it. I mean, I'm, I'm 61. Uh, and Nick Hall, I have to stop you there. Old oh, 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 hold on. Hold on. There must be a picture of a, 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 an old Nick Hayward behind that wall there because you haven't aged one day. <laughs> oh, bless you. Before yeah. you came on, me, Seth and Kieran, obviously research and we were looking up some videos even now of you. And I said to Kieran, he's drinking from the same fountain of youth <laughs> that that Chesney Hawks fella is drinking from. Ches- how, how, how young does Chesney Hawks look? Chesney, oh, Chesney Hawks is the same age as us. <laughs> and we, we interviewed Chesney Hawks. He looks like he's in his 20s. Yeah, doesn't he? He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, no, you, you, you know, I've got a good lighting. You know, <laughs> you know, if you get close with my ears and the teeth and all around it, you know, and inside, if you took a camera inside, it would be like, oh, yeah, you know. I mean, I've aged in different areas, you know. Like, <laughs> I take that, Nick. I take that. You know, the downstairs department isn't exactly in great shape, you know. <laughs> when teenagers seem to have fewer prospects than ever before, the success of three boys from Beckenham in Kent comes like a breath of fresh air. Nick, Les and Graham form the nucleus of the group Haircut 100, which in less than a year have come from the obscurity of Kent to the hit parade. If the critics are right, Haircut 100 are going to be big. Here they are with their first single, number four in the charts, Favourite Shirts. Well, Nick, uh, as a songwriter, how did it feel to see the public engaging and accepting your songs like Favourite Shorts, Boy Meets Girl, Love Plus One, Fantastic Day and mm. others? Uh, look, they all cracked the top ten, so we're doing something right. Yeah, that's that's what it does feel like, you know, uh, overwhelming kind of validation. And, uh, you know, you just can't believe that it's actually happening. Now you're, you've made stuff that people are being influenced by and you're, you're in it. You know, I had Alan Horn, uh, Orange Juice's manager, who was, who'd done, you know, had uh, had the, this record label and stuff. And he, you know, he was saying, how'd you get that sound? How'd you get that stuff? And I said, well got to get a brilliant drummer you know for a start you really have i mean that was the thing for us that was blair when he came in it was just like we became a little bit well very much world class up until then we'd been we'd been good but not as good as this i mean it was literally he came in and just sat us all in the pocket it was like just so solid to play with blair i mean he played with the jacksons and Rufus Thomas and you know he knew all the call in the gang and they all know Blair and Blair's got a load of brothers that all drum and they all lived in Memphis and they all hung out and it was like this is real genuine guy this is a this is a real and he's American that's so solid you know we could even possibly sound close to being Earth Wind and Fire you know because it was like that thing of you just it was a dream before because you listen to Earth Wind and Fire as I did over and over and over because the guy at work played it to death because he was a massive fan. And you just think, this is otherworldly. These people aren't from Earth. You know, they didn't, they didn't. How do you play that? How do you, how does that come together? You know, it just sounds impossible, you know. Um, But with Blair and when we were in the studio suddenly, it was like, oh, wow. You know, I mean, he started off calling Captain Autumn the song and we said, okay, this one goes a bit like, you know, and so Blair would be just, and he'd have this spirit, Blair. He's got this American confidence where he doesn't wait for you to say, okay, right, yeah, he hasn't got that reserved kind of like UK thing going on or anything where it's just like, oh, what was it? Just one, 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 two, a one, two, three, four, you know, it's just like, I'm Blair and I play drums. <laughs> you know, like, whoa, and we just have to keep up with him, like, you know, the intro to Calling Captain Autumn is, I still play it and just go, oh, my God. <laughs> and it actually goes with this bird, because I said, I'd really like to get a bird in there somehow. And the bird sort of starts to sing along with the hi-hat. And it's just <laughs> in perfect timing. And it's just, you know, that's how quick and solid Blair's mind is. So suddenly we just played like that. And then... It, it was being really proud of him at sound checks when 
you're sound checking and Blair gets on the drums. It's so impressive, you know. I mean, no wonder Paul McCartney just said, I'll have that. <laughs> I will have Blair in my band for 10 years, you know. Because yeah. he is just super califragilisticexpialidocious. He's, he's the bee's knees. He is <laughs> the, the man. Uh, Nick, it was during the recording of Haircut 100's second album that you decided to call it a day. What led to that decision? Oh, that's, that's a really involved thing. In fact, we're, um, we're actually releasing now the half sort of recorded album. You know, Demon are putting it out, so we're, we're talking to them. They're a brilliant company. And uh, so we're listening to all the stuff and what's instrumental and what are sort of, you know, just mixes, proper mixes. There was about three mixes done of, of things. Um, and then it does make a kind of like eight-track, nine-track album. So it's going to go alongside, you know, Pelican West and a reissue, 40th anniversary. You know, so, um, and it's funny, but, you know, it's just a, the, this, the, the errors, you know, of looking back on it, that the sort of the good decisions that were made in the beginning certainly didn't continue you know, um, just things like uh, having a manager and it was brilliant in the beginning, but, you know, he turned out to be a, a villain and, you know, um, so, you know, there was no money and that put stress on the band as well. And then, you know, second album and um, stress of being in America and, you know, that not having a manager, it's like, I tell you. It's not good. It would, Manchester United wouldn't be, or Liverpool, and you know, those those teams wouldn't be where they are without the managers. You know, it's it's it it's, it it works. I mean, imagine no manager. Yeah, you so, need that. Look, you need that guiding hand, don't you? Yeah. Look, look what happened to the Beatles with when Brian Epstein died. Yeah. yeah. You know, it just became. Well, we we had well, it was ten years. We had in one year. That was it. It was just you know. We didn't make it past the first year that, you know, we, we, we would have done, you know, but, um, yeah, it just didn't, just didn't happen. You know, guidance, the rudderless ship. Ultimately, you released Whistle Down the Wind as a solo mm. artist in 83, and it cracked the top 20. Was it weird being on stage at, at, the, at the beginning without the comfort zone of the guys around you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Weird in interviews. It was all a diff all completely different. Um, I would imagine it was different for them as well. They'll be like, you know, they must have had spinal tap moments of, you know, where's our front man? You know, and, uh, you know, because when you're in a position, you know, you, you're in that position because you suit that position, you know. Uh, you might think you're a good goalkeeper, but you try going in goal, you know. You might think you'd be able to play up front like, I don't know, the best people that just hang around the box and knock it in. It's, it's not easy. They make it look easy, don't they? But they just are there at the right time to just put it in. And... Um, so everybody's in their right position. But I think when you haven't got a manager, you've got members thinking, oh, well, I want to play in, I want to play up front. You know, it looks easy to me, you know, or I want to play at the back. And everybody was kind of doing that in, in haircut. It was a bit like, I want to be the singer and I want to, I, I can do congas. Oh, I can, you know, it's not that hard to write lyrics and it's not, you know, it's really easy. But, you know, everybody it was good in their position. You know, they, they shone in whatever they shone in. It just came natural to them. Well, your debut album, North of a Miracle, um, was a hit, released in 83, and it was a hit. Was there For yourself, was there a small sense of relief that the fans accepted you as a solo artist? Um, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I just thought, um, I mean, I, I just wanted it to, 
sound better. I mean, at the end of the day, as a songwriter, you just you feel there's a responsibility to the song first and foremost. That's what I've that's what I've always felt like. Is this like is this reaching its full potential? This this work, um, and I felt like Whistle Down the Wind wasn't because that song had been around developing right from the beginning since since it was called Look at Ruby. No, actually it was called first called Moving Back and it was played on John Peel. Uh, I'd stayed up all, all night to, for weeks to hear John Peel play this, the song and he finally played it. I said, oh, that was, that was Moving moving England, well, Moving Back by Moving England. I, that was it, you know. But to me that was like, oh, my God, this is it. And then, then later it developed a sort of... Uh, sax solo when we met phil in the studio then it was turned into this song called look at ruby and uh it got to the chorus and just did this beautiful sax uh which we all just thought wow you know that sounds amazing but then then it was it was like not fulfilling its full potential and i thought it'd be better to have a chorus there so so i kind of came up with hello hello hope you're feeling fine hello you know so it's like ah we've got a chorus and then when we recorded it it got to the chorus, but it went to the sax solo instead. So, you know, that was a moment. And it, it sounded sort of thin as well. And I, I wanted us to progress a bit more as it was going on. You know, at that time, ABC would sound grand. You know, Trevor Horn was making amazing sounding records and stuff. And we were making, and I think I, I wanted us to evolve a bit more. And we were sounding a bit thin. And and uh, I'd, I'd, I heard town crier by elvis costello and and uh i was just blown away by the sound of it mostly and it was it was jeff emmerich and i'd been i discovered the beatles on uh on tour actually i'd never listened to them up until going on that that heck 100 tour fair first tour and i just couldn't it was on my walkman and i was just listening discovering the beatles and so hearing that stuff i just thought well we as also we sound brilliant live and if that just doesn't seem to be captured on record and i so i was hearing the beatles saying this sounds so like here and really good and uh you know penny lane was just blowing me away and and uh, you know here was this song recorded by jeff emmerich pay made penny lane and he'd also made town crier and i just thought well why can't he make us ours you know so uh, I, I asked him, you know, it was again that one of those bold moves, you know, if give love some soul, if I may be so bold, I don't want to quote my own lyric there, but it's, 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 it seems apt. And it was that moment of like, yeah. And so that would have been the next step, but the band weren't into, into it. They wanted to stay with Bob. There began the, the split of stuff, you know, because it's just, they didn't want to sound, I wanted to to sound bigger and uh i wasn't i wasn't probably the best leader at that time and it takes people to be led as well and it would probably have been worked if it had been through management you know because it doesn't work if it comes from the singer and then it's just like you know so that began that began it you know so if you want to hear what the second the follow-up to pelican west sounds like it's north of a miracle you know, we would have sounded like that. Haircut would have sounded like Whistle Down the Wind did. Just, you know, big and expansive. And it from your I memory. want to keep it just brass. I wanted to go. Yeah. It's not a string section. But yeah, from, yeah. from your memory of that period, like having the sounding board of a band where you can run ideas off them and bounce. How did you do that as a solo? Were you using the session musicians or did you have somebody that you could bounce ideas off? Yeah, well, I'm, I've been lucky. I, I, I met one of the best bass players in the whole of the music business actually really early on i was i was doing some demos which i always did demos for everything mostly and uh i was i was actually near the nashville which is a brilliant pub for bands and i'd seen elvis costello there and loads of stuff and it was a studio across the road and uh i said do you know any any bass players or fretless bass players and and uh, somebody said, oh, I know this Welsh guy called Pino Palladino. And uh, so he said, oh, we, you know, get him down. So he came down and did a session. And it was like this enormous Welsh chap comes in, smoking a little roll up. And he played the bass. And I just thought, 
God, wow, you know. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so so that was it. And so I said, do you want to play on the album? And he said, well, I'm actually recording for a mate of mine called Paul. He was in the Q-Tips, and he's got a record deal. But um, I'm doing that in the evening. So he was doing me during the day sometimes and swapping around. And, and so I was making North of a Miracle, and, and, then, and then, you know, Paul was doing his album and then I think Whistle Down the Wind and uh, Wherever Lay My Hat were kind of pretty much the same time. And so, you know, they both got Pino and so suddenly this this guy, Pino Palladino, was all over the place going or sliding all over the place. Now he's in the Who, you know, because it's just like and he's he's been all over everybody's record. I mean I think even Richard Ashcroft had him in his band when he went when he went made a record on his own. And Nick, you uh, mentioned the reissue that's going to come out the 40th anniversary for uh, Pelican West. Do you have any plans to tour it? Um, well, it, it could happen. I mean, you know, we're just at the stage of, you know, I most of us can't make the meetings but but it was uh, myself and mark fox met up with demon and daryl who's putting it daryl eastley who's you know record collector and he's puts lots of things to together and creates lots of things in the same way that gary crowley creates and does things and on demon so that that was brilliant that that record uh, that gary did and put together which I had a couple of songs on, which was really lovely. So it's, it's nice to know that you're in Gary's heart, mind, you know, a record collection at least. And, uh, you know, so um, it's, it's, it's actually work in progress. You know, the next stage might be that, that it works and everybody's excited enough to get a gig together. But um, I think all of us have had times when we've tried to get it together but it's a it's a bit of a thankless task when you lead one thing and, and it's it's hard and it's you're playing the manager's role again so you know you yes it can get together but it can't stay together because you know it's okay coming up with business ideas for anything as you know but it's actually just keeping it together you know you've got to keep turning up every day you've got it's like doing a podcast you know you've got to actually do it you can everybody can say oh i've got this great idea for a podcast <laughs> But, you know, I've got the title for it and everything, you know. So, but, yeah, do it then. You know, do it every day and, you know, put it together. It takes and, a lot and, of time. And what a great title it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nick, your, your, your subsequent albums, as they've gone on, have definitely showcased your evolving skills as a songwriter. But the gaps between the albums seem to be just getting longer and longer. I mean, there was 18 years between Open Sesame Seed and The Mermaid and The Lighthouse King. And it's now five years since, you know, we heard Woodland Echoes. I don't know where the time goes. I don't know. <laughs> is, is, is that a purposeful is, decision? Or? No, no. The weird thing is, is I, I, I think I'm, I, I've got to get over that because I'm actually, I actually write too much, but it just doesn't get released. I can't, that's, that's the, the place that I need to work on because I could share songs I mean, I write songs on stage in, in front of people. It's that thing of, I was, uh, there's this thing called the birthday book and it's like, it's got a, the thing about the day you were born and what you were born and what it says. And, and I was born on the day of prolific expression, you know, over talkative to some, but you know, it's that thing of, I can just come up with songs. It's not, it's not a kind of, um, it's not, it's not boastful. It's just that thing of, I can't, I can't turn it off. It's, it's not, not handy when you're trying to sleep, but I can do that, but it's just that thing of, it's like the, the hose pipes trod on at some part with releasing it. Because I could actually do an album probably a day, you know, if I had the team involved and every, everybody together. And that's what the thing was in Haircut, because I was just a bit like, okay, we need a song. And it's just like, okay, here you go, you know. Uh, and it does piss some people off. I've, I had a few members of the band were like jealous of it. They didn't like it. They didn't like that stuff. And I, I've never understood that mentality because I never look at somebody and go, bastard, when they do something good. Like if somebody plays an instrument, they play it really well, I think, oh, that's amazing. You know, I don't go straight to bastard. But, you know, it's that thing of when it is like that, it doesn't feel good to have that when you've got have 
when you've got kind of jealous people around you like that. It's not something that I. It's, it's not something that I'd even want to do, really. It's just something that you just do, isn't it? It's like, you know. Uh, so, so anyway, I'd, I've got to somehow because I've like got this bunch of songs now that these new ones and they're sort of ready, but it's the whole other side of it. Like, um, it didn't help getting dropped all the time from record companies because you weren't selling enough. I mean, that's no excuse now because you can kind of share stuff immediately. Um, but I do on my Patreon. I mean, I can sort of like write a song and share it there. Uh, I'd love to do, to have that, but the coloring in of it, that's, that costs money. That costs lots of things. And, and I, I just I suppose I am quite independent spirit, spirited really, and uh, so I don't know. I wanted to, I want to get that together. It, it you know maybe that will happen by the by this year. You know maybe the sixty first year will be finally getting that production line going so that I can share all the stuff that I do come on. Because I tell you what it is is just really a phone filled with songs. That's that's. That's, it's really irritating, but that's what it is. It's like, you know, these are just, they go, it goes on and on and on, and these are all songs, and it goes back, and this is just the latest, and it goes on and on and on. Jeez. These are all songs. Artistic people need artistic output, Nick. You know what I mean? <laughs> Some people just... Uh, None will come out. One day, you know, it's just like I feel like I'm just gonna like, like snuff it, and then somebody's gonna share all this rubbish, and then people will think, which is obviously mad, you know, but or just full of too much, you know. You can end up being kind of uh, impoverished in your own abundance, you know. There's still a lot of love for Nick Hayward. I mean, we—I was telling a friend of mine that we were going to be interviewed. We had no Nick Hayward's coming on the show next week. And he go, oh, my sisters loved him. And there and then he started calling his sisters. You're not going to believe this. Derek's got Nick Hayward for the show. So like, there's still, you know, a lot of love for Haircut 100 and Nick Hayward. Mm. Can I ask you, you seem to have embraced the 80s revival festivals. We just haven't cared our fans of them when we go to them. How did you end up getting involved? Uh, well, um, the, the first one was when I was in, I was living in America and, uh, I was playing this place called Largo, which, which was run by John, a guy called John Bryan. Have you heard of John Bryan? He, he's produced Amy Mann, and he was in a band called uh, The Greys, and I think it was in Jellyfish as well. Yeah, we, we interviewed Jason Faulkner, so he would have. Yeah. Yeah. So he, Jason and him and John are just really close. You know, they're both geniuses, you know, pop geniuses and brilliant guys. And I was over living in L.A., and I, I went down to Largo, and sometimes – it would have uh, Jack Black go up and do some things and uh, Neil Finn would play if he came in town or Elvis Costello or something. They'd just get up and play. And um, and I just used to go there to, to watch stuff and met John and he said, you know, do you want to come and do thir- an hour, you know, an hour on Thursday or something? And I thought, okay. So got a few songs rehearsed and went along there and did something. And then as I was walking out, he said, um, oh, before you go, his um, he gave me a wad of cash. He gave me like a thousand dollars. I was kind of like, oh god, really? That was like that is honestly that was the first time I'd ever seen any money from any live performance ever. That's the first time. So, and uh, I was like a shark with a taste for blood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you mean you can actually get paid for this? You know, you mean you play? And then he said, well, yeah, you know, we've, it's, it's very simple setup. We've got a uh, hundred people, ten, $10 on the door and the artist gets all the money. So well, I said, what do you make the money? And he said, well, the bar and, you know, food. And uh, that's, we like, we love musicians. So that's, that's what it is. You know, it was this guy Flanagan actually. Uh, yeah, who ran it? A great gone. day, a great day. But yeah, I got a taste for it, and then I got a phone call. Here, would I come and play with ABC? It's Heaven Seventeen, Human League, and Banana Rama, and uh, and I said, you know, at that point, I was like in in my nineties head, and I still thought I was 
call on creation and I was like this uh, and I said no no not not really for me and they said oh we'll give you seven grand or something like that and I went I'd never seen seven grand in my life up until that point you know I'd seen a thousand and I thought well that's six more uh you mean how how long do you want and they said um three songs oh well what are you joking me i'd never seen that in my entire you know it always been figures to pay for this and to pay for that and this 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 fifty thousand is going to we give to you and so you get it and you think okay i've got fifty thousand pounds that that quickly becomes 20 after you paid you know for things and then that 20 you've got goes down to 10 and then you've got six then you've got five to live on for the next five years and so you think well actually i may as well have worked in burger king you know uh, it's like this is you know and that's the last because that's the advance and that's the last time you've got to see that so it hasn't been a lucrative business so here i was suddenly like oh well that's that's pretty good so that's how i got into it and then the next time was um I just stopped it for a while and then a, f a friend of mine locally, my son grew up into a sound man, which was, I can't say I wished and prayed for that, but I did. <laughs> Stood over his crib with, you know, please be a sound man, please be a brilliant sound man when you're older. So he grew up to be a sound man, you know, and um, he's a, a yeah, brilliant sound man. And he, so this guy locally, Nick, Billinghurst, lovely man, who uh, is a pilot. He's an acrobatic pilot in the area. And we met in a, in a pub called the King's Head in Cookham. And he said, thinking of starting the, like a, an 80s concert, um, would you do it? And so I said, um, Oliver on sound, my son. And I was on stage. So I got a band together and we got all the dads to do security. And uh, it was on the side of the road. And the uh, traffic was going by and you know, kind of thing. And we're playing, I'm going, fantastic day, you know. And everybody was freezing because it was cold that, that night. The temperature dropped, it was nice and the day. And then the next year it was, don't you know anybody else? You know, well, I know Howard Jones. Yeah, okay, do you think he'd do it? So he came along and then he did it and then it grew. And so that's how I got back into it. And so that's why I'm still doing it now because to be to be frank it's like nick's a really nice guy and um so that was that's how i'm kind of like still doing it that's why i was did it two days ago it was just kind of like i thought god i'm still doing this you know it's a fantastic day oh it's a great day oh yeah yeah it's, i have a good story to tell you nick actually i went to the let's rock belfast uh before the lockdown a few years ago and oh, yeah. we, we went up the night before myself and my wife and i got a taxi i ordered a taxi and i said well you want to go early because i wanted to see you so it was the same day as the Pride Festival up there. So I got into the taxi and the taxi driver hadn't got great English. So I said, could you take me to the Let's Rock Festival, please? Oh, uh, the Let's Rock Festival. Let's, oh, okay. Drives, brings me to the Pride Festival in the middle of Belfast. <laughs> and I says, no, I want to go to the Let's Rock. What is this Let's Rock Belfast? And, uh, he found the festival, right? And I could hear you playing. Well, what was that, Jesus? I think it was a fantastic day. And I got out of taxi. Did you hear that? So I missed the gig over the taxi. Oh, so I just got in to see the end of you oh it, it was all right it was really wasn't it it was yeah, it was okay the weather was pretty good and but i mean i heard like it's handy you turn up the band is there you just go up and sing the band yeah. know the gigs and you walk off it's great that's the thing as well with with these things it's like whatever stuff you thought you had when you go to this these things and you're meeting people backstage and in the audience and you're all just kind of like over yourselves you know and you meet and you just go, you know, like we're here just, well, for a start, it's amazing that we're here, <laughs> you know, in the audience and backstage. And it's just, it's just that stuff. It's just like a sort of um, really nice solidarity that happens. You know, yes, it, 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 there is a, a, you know, a coming together, you know, you know. But it's nice. It's really nice. I mean, I'd, I, I, I've, I've never, never had any kind of like that weirdness backstage at all at, at these things. And it's funny growing up, like over the top, I would say, uh, Howard Jones doesn't get on with Nick Kershaw. I'd say they, they kill each other. We always imagine this rivalries between acts, but no such thing I'd imagine. 
Oh, there was, yeah. There was lo- loads of that stuff that yeah. went on. Yeah, yeah, there, there was competition. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, sometimes people took it really, really seriously, the competition. Other people uh, hid it well, and other people were, had healthy competition. You know, that thing we're back to, that kind of like bastard, or, wow, that's really good. You either go straight to the bastard or you go straight to the, like, you know, a like, bit like an Italian guy when he sees somebody driving a Ferrari, he just goes, oh, you know, that's amazing. Whereas an English guy would be like, bastard but it's that attitude that's keeping you young looking it's this positive and you know what well, sure yeah, if it was eating you up you'd be looking 71 well may, maybe i mean I, I don't know i just um i i work on it man I, I do i have to you know you have to work on um releasing and letting go of stuff all the time yeah you know because i just don't i just don't want to build up any kind of resentment or anything any bitterness in, in any way because my father was he, he seemed to be riddled with it a bit. You know, his favourite drink was bitter, you know, and he had this saying about, you know, to the bitter end, and he was, you know, I was like, for fuck's sake, stop saying that. That's <laughs> like, you know, you're going to die with that, and then he did. And so I put it on his effigy, you know, to the bitter end. Kind of. um, and, I, I, you know, so I'm aware of it. It's I know it's in the genes and stuff, so I've got to, I've, I've got to work on that. But for some, some reason, I didn't get, obviously I didn't get the same, we don't get the same conditioning as our parents. You know, because like my dad got that wartime conditioning. You know, I mean, he, he was in the Irish Fusiliers, I think, or some some oh. sort of thing. And so he was out in um, Berlin. He says he stood guard over Rudolf Hess, and it's like, no, you didn't. You are lying. You know, you are so lying with that one because he was a bit of a porky pieer as well. And uh, so little little things like that. That um, he had a tough. He was like an only child, and he he. He was told that he was not going to come to anything, and he was he was ill a lot, and uh, and so he, he chose boxing in the army to to get fitter, and and then became you know so he was always you know he he had a completely different upbringing to to mine by the t- you know so we're like our parents, but we're not like their their conditioning. Thankfully, you yeah. know, like my son is not mine. You know, he hasn't got my yobby upbringing. You know, in, in <laughs> South London during the seventies. You know. He hasn't got any. He wasn't chased home from school, you know, heads, you know, and stuff like that, you know. So, um, yeah, he hasn't got that kind of Bowie, Bowie stuff that went on, all that. Mine was a bit like that, a bit like the Buddha of suburbia, in, if you can imagine, in Bromley and around that area. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like art, but it was also tough as old boots. Nick, as well as the, the, the Let's Rock festivals and the retro festivals, you play uh, acoustic intimate shows. How would you manage to strike a balance there? Uh, so, somehow I do. Um, I mean, I enjoy the personal ones because I can communicate like this with the audience, whereas the Let's Rocks and stuff and just a bigger audience, I don't say a word. It's about the only time I shut up, to be honest. It's, it's good. And have you had a preference, Nick, playing live or recording in the studio? I think I know what you're going to say here. Recording, 100%. Saying that, playing with musicians, playing together. Like I, re- I, rejo- I prefer rehearsals more than the live gig because the live gig, I've got to be, you're projecting out. But actually, the rehearsals, you're playing together as a band. So you just, you can feel every note and it's really good and everybody's playing together and stuff. But there's the element when you play live of the edge of nerves and you can feel musicians being a little bit hesitant, you know, you can feel and sense each other. Um, Like Ravi Shankar's band, apparently when they all play together, people that can read auras see that they're they're all turning purple together, you know? So if somebody was reading the aura of a band and like it's, they, you know, they would probably, but like they're, one guy be orange still and yellow and a bit green here and somebody would be sort of like black, you know, and brown and go like, oh, I'm so nervous, you know. Uh, 
so it's that whole thing of just feeling the music and getting it and i feel like rehearsals are much more we're in the one color thing you know we're all vibrating together well, Nick, you've, you've a busy year ahead with the Let's Rock and the, as Kieran mentioned, the intimate shows. Also, the re-release of Pelican Brief for its 40th anniversary, and the possible Pelican Brief. Pelican Brief, cut that mark. What did you say? <laughs> what did you say? The Pelican Brief. What oh, really? Yeah. I love that. That's that film, isn't it? With yeah. uh, <laughs> um, oh, Sandra yeah. Bullock, is it? No, Sandra. Oh, no, uh, Robert. As I was saying, as I was saying, yes. Mark, do your business. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, you 20... You'll have a job editing me as well. <laughs> I know. No, no, listen, this is bread and butter, yeah. man. Uh, 2022 has you crazy busy with the Let's Rock Festival, the intimate shows, the re-release of Pelican West, hmm. and, and the possibility of that, uh, you know, uh, elusive Haircut 100 second album. Hmm. I mean, is there time for anything else? Um, well, I was just thinking about that actually, because, you know, I've, al I've also got things I like writing as well, because I've been, you know, having a go at writing Fantastic Days, uh, you know, which is the story of the stuff I've been talking about, you know, like dad and mum and all that stuff that, you know, I might as well just write, you know, because it's, it, it is what, it is a, it's what I've lived, it's 61 years of, of Fantastic Days, question mark. Is it an exclamation mark or is it a question mark? You know, some, they're not all fantastic days. I mean, I had to sing fantastic day the day that my nan's funeral was, you know, and it's just like thing. No, it wasn't a fantastic day, but you know, in hindsight, it, it probably, it probably was, you know, it's all depends sometimes the way you look at it. I mean, obviously you, you don't want, nobody wants to be laughing at a funeral, but then again, it is the place to laugh. Sometimes the place to cry and a place to laugh and, you know, look at a wake. Sometimes it can be the most funniest place on earth because it's a celebration of the, the life. And um, but it's appropriateness, isn't it? It's like behaviour and appropriateness. And um, you know, and we're weird things and complicated things, us humans and stuff. So, so I just want to r write it and and share it anyway. But but um, sometimes, you know, I, I've been writing it. In, I like started writing stuff and thought. Oh my God, I don't want to share this, you know, you know, do you, you know, it's like everybody's got the personal life and you just write this stuff and you've, you've got to write it anyway, but do you want to really, you know, cause I, I, it's the music for me, you know, the whole, the mycelium that, that, that made the, the fruit of the, the mushroom fruit appear that, that that's music for me across the forest, not the kind of like personal stuff that goes on that's, you know, personal weird family stuff and dynamics that goes on that that kind of everybody has, you know, because it's, it's that whole thing. I, mean, I just went to see Benediction, which is uh, uh, Terence Davis's new new film. He's a fantastic filmmaker. You know, the structure of the film was magnificent. Everything's magnificent. But, you know, I didn't know anything about Ivan Novella before I saw the film, but you know, I'm watching it going, and he's portrayed quite unkindly, you know, quite as an unpleasant man, but, you know, I don't know, but I'm being introduced to Ivan Novella for the first time. You know, to me, Ivan Novella is, uh, is, a, is a nomination for an award I got, so I've got it, you know, somewhere, and I just like look at it and think, that's an amazing thing, but here he is being portrayed as this narcissist and, and stuff, and I just thought, well, I don't, I don't know, and and why is that even important? You know, why why isn't it focusing on Ivan Novella's fantastic songwriting skills? And and so, if I was writing something, I'm I'm I'd like to do that to focus on the good and the positive of people rather than just it's it's easy to dwell on our, all our faults and stuff. I know it's part of the story, but you know the kind of tabloid stuff it's bollocks, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it, it can be quite cathartic or almost like a another form of, of uh, you know, the go to a psychiatrist or something like that, you know? Yeah, we, yeah. we interviewed uh, Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnyman. Ah. And I predominantly the interview. Yet. Yeah. Uh, Bunnyman. It was an amazing right. book. And he, he said it's, it's, uh, it's a counselling. It's Kim getting all his, mm. his, um, mm. his feelings and his memories, good and bad, actually. It actually yeah, stops. Yeah, it it stops when the band forms. Yeah, That's where it ends. 
Ah. But then he said he's writing volume two, but like a lot of people have been disappointed, but I wasn't like, I mean, he talks about growing up in, you know, council estates and the tough mm-hmm. life as a kid. Really, really good. It was no yeah. rose tinted glasses behind it. Like, so oh, really? if that's, I, if that's your, if that's your goal. I, I, I well, you know, I, I like grit cause I like King Loach, you know, as a director, you know, if I, if I ever wanted somebody to direct a film called fantastic days about haircut and that whole thing, I'd like King Loach to do it. Cause it's just, you know, I don't, I, I just, I mean, although it was a comedy of errors and it would be quite a good comedy, like an healing comedy or something. Or, um, it, 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 it can be kind of like, cause haircuts got a bit of a cute thing going on with a bit like blinded by the light and, um, sing street. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit, it's really naive. It's got, it had a naive thing running to it too, but also this dark sort of underbelly that was going on with the manager who was like the villain you know, <laughs> it was it was quite strange, band. Quite the duality with yeah. maybe the book will morph itself into a, a script. Yeah, I mean, it, I I write like a scriptwriter. Funny enough, I I think the scene. That's how I write. So it's uh, I so I you know I mean my my poor wife Sarah has been bombarded with the first scene over and over and over again. You know, I'm standing in front of this mirror in the bedroom in my platform shoes, orange, you know, ice lolly, orange platform shoes. It's like, oh, get over that bit, will you? You know, but it's like, I see it. I visualize it, you know, um, whereas it's got to be more guttural, you know, you just got to write the stuff and just pour it out very much like I do songs. And then you chip away at it. You know, you don't just put it all into a song, waltz and all you do like a poem you work on it you chip away and it's what's left is the is the is the uh, work is the statue isn't it well nick we, we could talk to you all night in fairness you made our lives very very easy today I have oh, to thank cool. you very much and we have a question that we we end our interviews on and it's 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 last orders of the bar and mm-hmm. it's last orders in the last chance saloon okay you have a pound in your pocket there's a jukebox <laughs> in the corner What's the last song Nick Hayward ever wants to hear? Um, Let Your Love Flow by the Bellumi Brothers. What a song. I want to hear that just before I put my clogs. <laughs> you know what? I think, I, think I, would, I think that would be my song as well because it, it's, 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 it's a toe tapper. Nick yeah, Hayward from yeah. yourself, Kieran, Mark, a big Irish thank you. Oh, likewise, man. It's lovely.